Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. We are live in the Morton studio and we're talking a little bit about managing soil pH on our show today. If you've got any questions for us, you can certainly send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Or give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. So when it comes to managing soil pH, this is going to affect every crop. Quite frankly, it's going to affect every weed too. But we, we often will talk about reading soil tests here on the show. And we say pH is the most important thing. Now, as I say that... If your pH is way off, let's say you got an 8 pH, or let's say you have a 5 pH, don't think, don't ever think that just because you've got that pH off that, oh, my my yields are ter- going to be terrible and all is lost. No way. You can start working on that right away. And if you are taking the right steps, you can actually get some really good yields. We've been able to show that even on our farm where we've had some pH that's way out of whack. And, you know, we pick up ground, we go, oh, my God, goodness. We've got 8, 8, 2 pH. we got to get working on this. And so we use a little bit of elemental sulfur. We are a little more aggressive with certain nutrients. And you know what? I mean, almost immediately, we're raising really great crop. But if you're just going to do the same thing on an 8 pH, a 5 pH, and a 6.5 pH, which is kind of what we're looking for, um, then you're probably going to have some challenges. So we'll talk a little about that throughout the show today, talk about liming to raise pH, talk about elemental sulfur and drainage and all the things that can cause high pH and how you can overcome that on your farm, whether you get the pH down or you don't. And we'll kind of go through that regardless of the crop. This is an important issue. It's something you absolutely want to be taking a look at. So we will discuss it on our show today. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. Okay, Brian, this one's from Brandon. He sent a soil test here, just kind of an average test for him to, to make a point on this. He said they're, they're in an area that gets about five inches of rainfall a year. CEC is around 10 to 15. So if you aren't familiar with reading soil tests, uh, for anybody listening today, 10 to 15 CEC soil means uh, light to medium soil. And five inches of rainfall is not very much. Now, what he's worried about is trying to build nutrient levels in the soil. And obviously, he's got some that are in pretty good shape. Look like just on quick glance, the base saturation cave is like really strong already that at least it's not that one, but there are quite a few other immobile nutrients he wants to build, but he's also trying to increase organic matter. And when he's only getting that much rainfall, he thinks the only way to do that's full no-till. Now, he said he was considering strip-till to try to put some nutrients deep, but the strip-till unit just seemed out of his financial means right now. He tried renting a liquid knife applicator, and it seemed like more time and money than that was worth. And so he's just concerned if he lays everything on top, then it might wash away if he gets the rain at the wrong time. But just wondering what what you would suggest and how to tackle uh, building fertility levels without doing tillage or or a minimal amount of tillage. Now, if he's that worried about the cost of the machine, what I would say is just rent one or have somebody come in and custom do it. And if it was me and I realize uh, 
we're maybe, well, I'm sure we're in a little different financial situation than you because we've been farming for years and years. We own most of our ground and everything. But honestly, if I was in that spot and I said, look, I don't want to get a strip-to machine, I would go out there and I would deep place fertility once every four to six years. So I would only be out there with that strip-to machine once every four to six years. I'd just do it all, place it deep, have it done with. So I'd, you know, figure out a way. Did you say how many acres? You didn't say how many acres, did you? didn't say how many acres, but he, he, yeah, did, okay. he did talk about that too, that putting out five years worth of immobile nutrients yep. on even small yep. parts of the farm seems yep. painfully expensive on the initial side and that the return it on is. investment would be kind of slow. Well, yeah. I, I mean, if you're doing anything for a four-year period, then obviously your one's going to stink. But after that, it's pretty good. I mean, it's just like if you go seed an alfalfa crop or, I mean, any long-term thing, that's that's just the way it is. But I'm just saying, if you want to get nutrients down in the soil, that's one way to do it without tilling every year and without buying a machine. Because Quite frankly, on five inches of rain and medium textured soil, your P and K is going nowhere. It's going nowhere. So I wouldn't worry about that too much. And you know what? When I look at this, to Darren's point earlier, the K is not in bad shape. It's the phosphorus that's the problem along with the zinc and copper. So those are three immobile nutrients right there. If you put them out, and as long as they don't wash away with erosion... They're going to be there until they get used. And I don't care if that's two years from now or 20 years from now, they're going to be there. So if I owned the ground, that's how I would be managing this thing. And I would say soil pH is a little bit on the low side. That's our topic today, managing soil pH. It's 5.9. So it depends on what crop you're trying to raise here. Most crops like a 6.3, 6.8, something like that. So I might put just a touch of lime on there. Not a whole lot, though. All right. Thanks for the questions. Really appreciate that. And yeah, it's it's tough to know what to do sometimes, especially uh, when you're trying to get the maximum return on investment from everything that you're doing. This one comes from Chris about a home garden. He said, I've got deep clay and I've got some gutless, silty soil on top. He said, I'm wondering what the option is for loosening things up other than some deep tillage, but I could do some deep tillage. Also, what do you think about ammonium sulfate and lime? Yep, ammonium sulfate, lime, and gypsum are probably your methods that that we're going to be talking about here. The reason why I would also bring up gypsum is because that's calcium and sulfate. And most likely that ground needs some more calcium to help loosen it up a little bit, make it a little bit softer. We like having the sulfate out there because a lot of times that can bind with magnesium that tightens the soil. So if you're looking for a little bit looser soil, you want better overall soil porosity, you got to do what you can to increase your calcium levels. Lime, I may not go with that depending on your pH. If your pH is already neutral to high, I would just go right to gypsum and potentially, certainly you could use some ammonium sulfate when you want nitrogen out there as well. We're going to talk about managing soil pH on today's program and also take your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Stay tuned. The Pentair Hypro Express Flush Valve reduces plugged nozzles and improves cleanout of your spray boom. Simply flush boom sections with a quarter turn ball valve and leave your tools in the cab. Plus, installation is easy. Simply remove the existing end cap plug and replace with the Hypro Express Flush Valve. Learn more at pentair.com slash hypro. Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases the seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. 
You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco Vilify and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco Vilify and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. When it comes to competitive herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. They've been bringing growers trusted brands like Weedmaster, Patriot, and Diablo for decades, made right here in the USA. What's your favorite New Farm brand? Email it to turnuptheburn at newfarm.com and you'll be entered to win a monthly $1,000 product giveaway. In these unprecedented times, you're facing unprecedented pressure. New Farm's here to help. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about managing soil pH. We get a lot of questions about this really about every single day, whether it's on the low pH side or on the high pH side, whether we're talking about we've got some excesses out there of things like sodium or we just really need to lime. I want to talk about that on today's show. If you have an agronomic question, please feel free to reach out to us. Our phone lines will be open throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. We already tackled one soil test that came in. I'm sure we'll get some more, and we'd be happy to look at yours. Real happy to have Jim Camberato with us right now with Purdue. Jim, thanks for joining us. Sure. Glad to be with you. All right. I'd love to throw you the slam dunk softball question of what do we do about low soil pH, but I'm going to go on the other side of this. When you (laughs) see high soil pHs come in and farmers that are really struggling in your state, where do you see some of the excesses that are leading to that high pH? Well, usually it's, it's parent material. You know, it's a natural condition of the soil. Um, Sometimes people overlime. You know, they cause, cause a problem. But in in Indiana, often we just have soils that were formed in calcareous parent materials. And so they naturally have a high pH. All right, let's talk about that overliming condition because, let's face it, we've been guilty of that on our own farm, not giving the lime enough time to fully express itself and, and putting another application out. And all of a sudden we get a pH now that's over 7. How do you get that back down? Well, yeah, and I and I actually about half hour ago was looking at a bunch of those overlined uh, samples on some sandy soils. Um, yeah, so so the problems often are with micronutrient deficiencies like zinc and corn and manganese in soybeans, and um, generally for most crops, it's not economical to try to lower pH with something like elemental sulfur. 
uh, to do it abruptly, but um, uh, nitrogen and, and leaching will eventually lower pH. So we um, talk about uh, maybe banding some micronutrients with an acid-forming starter fertilizer as a way to overcome those uh, deficiencies or um, incorporating some ammonium sulfate to provide sulfur, which is going to create more acidity than liquid nitrogen or anhydrous and maybe accelerate the decrease in pH by choosing a, a more acid end source. Yeah, creating the acid to try to to make that process happen is is something that a lot of times we'll end up talking about. But I, I want to go back to one thing you said right away, that you were just recently looking at some sandy soils that were overlimed. Yeah. I know Brian and I see this quite often where we'll get farmers that send us samples and say, here's my soil, and it's a really light sandy soil. And then we see their lime rack, and it seems like – it's real easy to overdo it there. How do you get guys to slow down and just start with a really low amount first? Because I think they can get a lot of response out of that in many cases. Yeah, yeah, you have to be careful. And we have special lime rates for um, low buffer capacity so, uh, soils. So soils where are sandy that don't have a, a very high cation exchange capacity. And we just base it on the the difference between the actual pH and the desired pH. Uh, and those recommendations are generally in the, the half to one and a half ton per acre range. And so they're concerned, you know, they tend to be conservative. And uh, the best thing to do is use, use the, the lower rate and then recheck your pH in uh, the end of the next season, maybe, you know, one and a half to two years down the road and see how you did. The buffer capacity of the soil or the amount of lime needed to change pH really shouldn't change too much over time. So you ought to be able to dial it in by, you know, using a rate, see where you get to, and then maybe adjusting it a little down or a little up the next time you lime. So it's good to have good records of, you know, how much was put out and what the pH change is and, and make some changes that, you know, along the way because the, the best recommendation is one you de can develop from your own field rather than using a, the general recommendation which has to apply across a range of different types of soils. Yeah, very well said. The best recommendation you can generate is one that you're getting off your own ground based on your experience, and keeping good records is really key. You know, everybody gets so excited, Jim, when they see, oh, no, I've got a pH that's creeping down into the low fives. I know I'm losing yield. i got to get after it. And I think in many cases this is why somebody would overdo it because they're just so excited that I know this is bad. i got to move it up. How much yield are we really giving up when we get down in those low pHs? Well, probably more with soybeans than corn because the, the low pH affects not only the plant but the, the bacteria that are fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere. Um, so it might be in the range of 10 to 30 percent or 15 to 30 percent with corn being on the low side and soybeans being on the higher side. It also depends on the organic matter and... Um, 
high organic matter tends to reduce the effect of low pH. And so if you you got a soil with 4 or 5% organic matter, you can tolerate pretty low pHs with no effect on the plant, where a low organic matter soil, uh, you'll have much more detrimental effects. So, um, And that's why we, you know, we can maintain organic soils in the low fives and raise really good crops. You know, the one crop that I'm thinking about when we talk about low soil pH is alfalfa. We get a lot of growers that say, oh, I'm sure. going to have alfalfa in my rotation. I got to get that pH in line quickly. Where do you like to see that? Do you like to see it up into the sevens a little bit just to give yourself a cushion, or are you comfortable even at a 6.8? Uh, probably in the sevens and, and maybe up towards seven and a half. And, and part of the reason for that is. Um, you're you're locked into a surface application, and you're hoping that stand is going to last a while. So you want to want it to be adequate throughout the life of the stand, and not be the cause of maybe decline in stand. So for our soils, we here we recommend moving the pH up before establishing alfalfa to about seven and a half. Um, you know, hopefully keep it in the sevens or very high sixes uh, throughout the, uh, the time that stand is effective. Yeah, there's certainly some crops that are highly sensitive to what soil pHs are and, and alfalfa being one of them. We're talking with Jim Camperato here with Purdue. Jim, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Sure. Have a great day, and I appreciate being with you. You bet. You know, a lot of lot of things there to unpack, and I think when we start talking about the differences in soils, Jim was mentioning he's working with some guys with some sandy soil, and then he was talking about low organic matter soil versus higher organic matter soil. There's just a buffer component there when we've got a higher organic matter soil for so many things, whether it's for holding nutrients or supporting microbial life, and if our soil microbes have a safe place and a home to live in with that cushion, with high organic matter soils, they can still do their job in a lot of cases. And I think that's what Jim was getting at there. What's been interesting, Jim was mentioning that when we get our pH way out of whack, some crops are going to suffer more than others. Certainly alfalfa that we highlighted is one that just can't tolerate those low pHs like some other crops can. We've really seen corn suffer too when that pH gets down. If you do grid soil sampling on your farm and you track where your yield is at through each of these points. We've talked about this a number of times on our show, but one of the things that we see when that pH goes down, for us, it's hurt corn even worse than beans. Way worse. I mean, it's not even close. Our yields are like half when you get down to 5 pH or less. So we've got to keep that pH up to some degree. I'm not saying it has to be 7 or anything like that, but just get it to 6 and above, and it really helps corn and beans. Yeah, and just like Jim was saying, too, you don't want to overdo it either. So we'll talk more about that and talk or continue the discussion on managing soil pH right after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make up for the season or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. 
Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim. I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. <sighs> Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your Burndown. It's about time. Applied at planting, new Zyway 3D fungicide from FMC delivers foliar disease protection from planting to harvest. Active ingredient flutriophol moves from the soil through the corn as it grows for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. For season-long protection, choose first-of-its-kind in-furrow Zyway 3D fungicide. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking about managing soil pH on today's program. And as we're talking, getting more soil tests sent into the Ag PhD mailbag. You can send your samples in or or your questions in radio at agphd.com, or you can just give us a call and have a discussion with us eight four 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 two forty seven forty three. Let's head down to the University of Missouri. You got Peter Sharp with us. Peter, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you. All right, you got quite a diverse state and a lot of different situations popping up with pH. I know we've gotten a number of questions out of the state of Missouri, and, and different parts of the state are fighting different things. When when you listen to uh, farmers talking about managing soil pH, what are the big discussions going on in the state of Missouri? Well, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I hear them talking about a lot of other things before I hear them talking about pH. I mean, I think most people feel like they've got liming and pH whipped, and they don't think about it a lot. So it's more on the low pH side that you end up dealing with than the high? 
Yeah, we really don't have any issues in the state with high pH, except if you've got uh, some soil that washed down from the Dakotas, if you're in the Missouri River bottom, or if you overlimed, and, and even then it's only the top, you know, three, four, five, six inches that's too high. So we don't have any micronutrient issues because the roots will just go down below that and get it. So low is the only problem we have, and that's not too bad either. You, you have to really try hard to get in big trouble. Well, that's a good situation to be in because it can certainly be a, a yield-robbing factor if guys are, are doing liming. When you look at the lime sources available across the state, what do you see? Do you see calcitic lime? Do you see dolomitic lime, a little bit of each? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the balance is, but there's quite a few quarries for each one. And, uh, you know, people have tried to make it a selling point, and uh, it wasn't me, but Gene Stevens and David Dunn did a, a really big study you know about because some people were claiming you had to have one and not the other and they put on ridiculous amounts of each kind on small plots and they also put on calcium magnesium that wasn't lime it was just like you know some other calcium or magnesium compound and they found that as long as you put on lime carbonate in other words uh you did fine and you got some yield increase in your crops when they started on a pretty acid soil but the amount of calcium and magnesium didn't make any difference. Where do you see the big challenges then for farmers in your state with fertility? Is it on an NP or K, or is it more to a micronutrient? Well, uh, I mean, as I said, micronutrients are, are mostly a problem where you've got high pH soils, and we don't have those really. So uh, that's not too big of a deal for us. Nitrogen is always our number one on the fertility side. And uh, it may be that there are people where there's some sensitivity on Lyme. There was some research done back in the 60s down in the Mississippi Delta where soybean yields really crashed when pH got low. But the two studies up in the northern part of the state, it didn't hurt it too much, even when you got down to fairly low numbers. And uh, I've looked at some farmers' fields where, in, in that northern part of the state where I, I looked at their yield maps and I looked at their grid soil samples and, and you know, it, it went from five and a half to seven and there was probably no yield difference at all across that range interesting how about sulfur peter this is one that we're hearing a lot more debate about and certainly in in different crops we see different recommendations as we travel around the country where where you stand uh, or where does the university of missouri stand with sulfur and, and what recommendations do you make well we're working on it right now john Lorry is leading a, a group starting this year of sulfur on farm response experiments so I've been here 25 years, and um, about five years before I got here, Daryl Buholz did a, a statewide network of experiments and found an average response of zero. I believe that was only on corn. Uh, about 10 years after that, I did 70 experiments, 40 on bean, 20 on corn, and about 10 on wheat, and uh, zero response on corn and soybean, a little on wheat, especially in the southern part of the state. Uh, Ten years after that, and, you know, and it changes over time because we're sure. we're depleting it and we're not getting it out of the rain anymore. Right. So you have to keep checking, and at some point we're going to get a response. And uh, so Julie Abendroth with Pioneer did another set of about 30 on-farm strip trials about 10 years ago and averaged zero, but we're starting up a new set of trials this year to see if that's still the answer. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. There's there's so many different things when it comes to fertility. And like today, we started off talking pH a little bit, and obviously pH is a factor of what's going on in the soil, your parent material, and, and lots of other things. Mm-hmm. I know some of the irrigated guys will talk about water quality and how that can eventually impact some some issues if they've got some sodium or other things that they're dealing with. But yeah, we get down mm-hmm. to, to individual nutrients. Like here, we're talking sulfur. If that's not the limiting factor, something else is and something's leading i mean there's some fantastic yields coming out of the state of missouri in areas yet yet it's variable so it's it's just fun talking with yeah, farmers well, and trying to dial it in our number one if we have good water not too much and not too little that's a good year for us we don't have the soils that'll uh breathe well when it rains a lot and hold a lot of water when it doesn't rain a lot gotcha and so you know we're more we rely more on pretty well-distributed rainfall than some of the other states with some better soils. So that's number one for us. Sure, sure. And nature, probably too, genetics is huge, of course. Uh, keeping the weed control working right is a big one. Yeah. Um, you know, and speaking of weed control, I did studies back right when Roundup Ready was breaking. And uh, what we were looking at was um, pH, so getting back to pH, and uh, for people who don't till or don't till much, you put your lime on and you can get pretty high pHs up there in the top inch. And then if you're doing nitrogen on top as well, which uh, is becoming more and more common, that nitrogen will drive down the pH right at the top. And when, when Roundup Ready hit, it didn't matter because all everyone was using was Roundup. But you know that's gone away. And there's a lot more use of residuals now. And uh, what we found was that the six inch pH could be in line, but the top inch might be out of line and that might, you know, put your herbicide program out of whack. And now that's something to be conscious of again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we did some studies too, just in, in our geography, looking at the soil test for each one inch as we went down and, and in some cases three mm-hmm. inches at a time. And we, we totally agree with you on that. It can be way different in that top inch or top three inches compared to what you are six inches down. Right. And, you know, I'm not a chemistry guy, uh, weed herbicide chemistries, but I know, for example, atrazine, you start getting that top inch too low because you haven't limed in a long time and you haven't tilled either. And your six inch pH may be good, but the top inch is low and atrazine is very insoluble. And so you're not going to get the control you should out of it. Yeah, it's it's a great topic. And, and, you know, we're talking about managing soil pH and most folks would say, well, I just want to have my nutrients be available. But uh, we're talking with Peter Scharf here with the University of Missouri. Peter brings up a great point that, hey, that's going to impact a lot more than just nutrient availability. We think about herbicide carryover too. And in, in some cases, when you get these wild pHs one way or the other, we may have certain chemistries that hang up and last a lot longer in that soil too. So it, it definitely comes into managing every aspect of what's going on with that crop. Great point, Peter. Really appreciate that. Right. Yeah, we actually had a a slight yield hit on beans the following year when we jacked the pH up or took it way down. If we were in between, we didn't get it. But when we were too high or too low, we were getting a bushel, bushel and a half of carryover damage to the soybeans. Very interesting. That's good stuff, Peter. That might bring up a topic. I guess our our sister Janelle is... uh, 
is producing our show today and she's always looking for new topic ideas that might end up being a new topic for us is soil ph and how to how to manage herbicide use just a little bit different hey peter thank you so sure, much for i would love to get more people into that and you know talking about it including people who know more than me and have worked on it more than me because you know we are depending on residuals a lot more again now absolutely yeah we are we well you mentioned it. it if we don't get great weed control out there we know what's going to happen to yields <laughs> It's not going to be pretty. Nope. Hey, Peter. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. And and yeah, if you get any other suggestions on uh, folks to talk to, you can you can catch Janelle off air and share some of those with her too. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on to talk about uh, fertility in Missouri. And uh, have a great day. You bet. You as well, Peter. Thank you. We're talking about managing soil pH on our show today and tackling any, any agronomic questions that you have at eight four four forty four Ag PhD. We'll be right back. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farm your way. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at OpenSkyHerbicide.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans. Elite Genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Fill once, plant all day. 
The Thrive 3D application system from FMC is a revolutionary in-furrow crop protection platform that plants up to 480 acres between refills. The Thrive 3D application system mounts to most major planter brands and can be yours at no cost with the FMC Freedom Pass program. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're broadcasting today from the Morton studio and we're talking about managing soil pH. So right before the break, when we were talking to Peter Scharf, he had just made the comment about different pHs at certain levels in the soil. So going back a number of years ago, we did one-inch soil tests in a strip-till field, a conventional till field, and a no-till field. So they were all long-term. That was the tillage method. And for all of of them, we did 0 to 1, 1 to 2, 2 to 3, 3 to 4. You see where I'm going with this. Every one inch we sampled down to 12 inches deep. The lowest pH was at the 6 to 7-inch depth. And it was the lowest in strip till, it was the lowest in conventional till, it was the lowest in no till. Right at six to seven inches, that's where the pH was lowest. And the average, by the way, was 5.2. 5.2. The average in the top one inch was 6.5. The average at the 11 to 12 inch depth was 6.3. Okay, so we're talking mid sixes all the way down to 5.2 at 6 to 7 inches deep. So I brought this up at a number of the workshops that we do, and I've just asked people, okay, what do you think caused that? And Well, I'll tell you what caused that. It's roots. We often forget what roots really do. I mean, sure, we think about them bringing in water and nutrients, but they excrete organic acids. They're kicking acid out into the soil all the time to try to make nutrients that are currently unavailable come available. So when they're kicking all that acid out, that's the reason why we saw in the range of four to nine inches where the roots are going to be most predominant, where we're going to have the most, the, the, the largest mass of roots. We saw that pH drop a half a point to over a full point. So I would kind of keep that in mind that you are going to have a little bit lower pH down there. And so if you're running, let's say it's a zero to eight inch test, in most cases, that's why your pH is going to look a little lower than a zero to six inch test. And it's definitely going to look lower than a zero to four inch test. So just one of the things I want you to keep in mind. We also talked today about high pH just a little bit. And I want to get into that a little bit more because that's probably the one we get the most question on. It It's the most challenging to manage in our opinion. But here are the five reasons why we most commonly see pH go high. Number one is poor drainage. Number two is your topsoil has disappeared and now you're literally farming subsoil. So in other words, you don't have much for organic matter, you haven't been fertilizing it, you don't have roots in there, all, all the kind of stuff that could potentially lower that pH and get it back to neutral. Uh, number three, poor irrigation water quality. Number four, high magnesium. And number five, high sodium. When I mention high magnesium and high sodium, just a couple of quick stats for you. Magnesium raises soil pH roughly 1.6 to 1 compared to calcium. 
and sodium raises pH 4 to 1 compared to calcium. So when you've got a high magnesium soil, you're probably going to have a high pH. When you've got a high sodium soil, you are definitely going to have a high pH. Okay, so we have to figure out, first of all, why our pH went high, so then we can get it addressed. Because the management is definitely going to be different if you've got, let's say, your topsoil has disappeared or you have poor irrigation water quality compared to if you have high sodium. All right. When you have high sodium or high magnesium, it's not that uh, complicated what you have to do, but it's a two-step process. Number one, you put tile in the ground and improve your drainage. And number two, you turn magnesium and sodium into salts. And you can do that by adding sulfur. So when sulfate combines with magnesium, it forms Epsom salt. When sodium combines with sulfate, it forms sodium sulfate. That's a salt. All right, so once you have a salt, now that's leachable. And now through either the process of irrigation or just natural rainfall, those salts will move down in the soil. And as long as you have good drainage, that's why I talk about put tile in first, now you're in pretty good shape. And over time, you're going to flush out some of that magnesium and some of that sodium, and then your pH is going to start to go down. So I'll, I'll, I'll say the words that Neil Kinsey often uses. He says, look, pH is really just a symptom of what's going on in your soil. What's happened is your nutrients are out of balance somehow, some way, and that's why you got an 8 or 8.5 pH, or that's why you got a 5 pH. You got to get those nutrients back into balance. Anyway, in, in terms of this high pH thing, we also get lots of questions about elemental sulfur, and let me just explain a little bit why elemental sulfur lowers pH. First of all, some people will tell you you can't lower pH, and that's ridiculous. Other people will tell you, well, elemental sulfur doesn't lower pH, and that's also nonsense. Elemental sulfur does lower pH. So here's how it does it. Basically, it, it it's, in my opinion, I just think this is a little weird how it works. So I think of Fertilizer is, you throw it out in the soil, the roots take it up, the plant uses it, that's the end of the process. All right, that's just how I've always kind of thought of it. But here's elemental sulfur. You throw it on the ground, and what happens is it interacts with soil bacteria, with oxygen, and with water, and then it creates sulfuric acid. It's literally creating sulfuric acid out in your soil. Well, you think about it then, what ends up happening is it converts over to sulfate, and through this process, you've got free hydrogen that is releasing, and that is lowering your soil pH. Okay, so that's the reason why it happens. The problem with elemental sulfur is two things. Number one, you've got to have that bacteria working to break it down. Okay, well, think about conditions when bacteria don't live. Number one is when they don't have air. They have to have air. So if you have poor drainage to start, then your elemental sulfur is not going to turn into sulfuric acid, otherwise known as hydrogen sulfate. It's going to turn into hydrogen sulfide, and that's bad. Your soil is going to smell like rotten eggs. So my point is, if you say, well, boy, I think I want to use some elemental sulfur uh, to help lower my pH, I'm going to tell you first, fix the drainage. Then let's worry about our pH. We say it almost every day here on our show. Drainage is first. That's where your first dollar should go. I don't care what everything else looks like. That's where the first dollar goes if you have a drainage issue. The next dollar goes into 
pH as well as your fertility, okay? But take care of the drainage first, then the elemental sulfur can work properly. Now, the next thing is when you buy elemental sulfur, it's just like buying lime. If you want to get a great value and have it work for you quickly, you want a small particle size. And you might say, well, how am I going to know that? Because it doesn't tell me that on the label. I can call up my fertilizer dealer and he doesn't know. He has no clue. What you do is you find several sources of elemental sulfur. You get samples of them. And then you can, if you want, just like we do, we'll put them in a little jar with water. And we shake them up. And then we come back the next day. We shake them up. We come back the next day. We shake them up. We, we've got some elemental sulfur sitting in one of our guys' offices that it's been in there for, I don't know, two years now, and you shake it up and it still sounds like rocks in there. Did that fully break down in two years sitting in full water? No. So obviously, I'm not going to say that stuff is worthless, but who knows how long that's going to take to actually break down in your soil? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? I don't know. But if I'm going to use an elemental sulfur product or a lime product, I'd like it to work as quickly as possible. If I'm going to spend all that money, I want it to work. Well, anyway, what we would tell you is, look, you got to get a soil test first because we want to find out, do you just have high pH or are there other things going on? So for example, sometimes we'll see soil tests come in and we see, well, the pH is high, but the sulfur is always also ridiculously high. Well, don't add elemental sulfur to that. Drainage is probably your issue. Just fix the drainage and then your pH is going to come down as your sulfur starts to leach out and pull some of those other elements out like sodium or magnesium, things that are raising the pH right now. Now, granted, if you do have a high soil pH and you have low sulfur levels, then adding elemental sulfur can be a great idea. One last thing. When we talk about low pH, yes, lime will raise the pH, but always ask yourself, why did my pH get low in the first place? Probably wasn't naturally that way. So chances are you're overdoing your nitrogen program, but there could be some other reason why your pH is going so low so fast. So always keep asking yourself, how can I get better in terms of fixing that pH and managing soil pH on my farm? And generally speaking, you're going to make more money and have better yield. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with high striker treated nitrogen. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. 
See program terms and conditions for full details. Maintaining your crops is as important now as it's ever been. Howler, a revolutionary fungicide from AgBiome, can help. It provides long-lasting protection from a broad spectrum of foliar and soil diseases that affect crops. Howler is OMRI listed, has multiple modes of action, and has minimal pre-harvest and re-entry intervals. It's flexible, easy to use, and is available right now. Visit agbiome.com forward slash howler to learn more. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make up for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. to Ag PhD Radio. It's Ag PhD Mailbag time. We'll dive back into the mailbag here and get some more questions. Uh, Brian, get, I'm going to give you the rapid fire ones here. This one comes from MK. wonder what you guys think about hydro priming seeds. Will that help me get a more even emergence? Uh, how are you going to hydro prime? Uh, we've seen a lot of guys over the last few years. We've actually done a little bit of work on it, not a huge amount. I don't know if it's something that is going to work on a large scale for most of modern agriculture. Well, how are I you going to do it? That's my question. There's there's a lot of guys doing it, Brian, right now Again, in various no. crops. How are you? How? How? There, oh, boy. There's, there's a ton of different things out there. We're talking about basically having the seed take in some moisture and yep. kind of pre-germ a little right. bit and how before are you, you plant that? it so that when you get in the soil that it's not going to have to take as much. And there's a lot of concern around it in terms of will you ding that seed up when you're running it through a planter, that kind of stuff. So I know there's a lot of folks out there doing it. If you're going to try some of that, I'd suggest doing it on a very small scale. And I have no idea you how you're going to do it. But yeah, right. You go online, you can find all kinds of people that are trying that. I can't yeah, say. There's no modern planter that's going to do that for you. I have no idea how you're ever going to do that and make that work on a big scale. All right. In corn and soybean and wheat production, I have no idea. Now, sure, if it's some vegetable crop and you can single hand, I mean, you can plant stuff by hand and everything. Fine. You can sure try that. But do I think that's a big deal? No, I do not. No. And honestly, if you had irrigation, which I, I get it, a lot of guys do not have irrigation, including our farm. We don't have irrigation. But there's quite a few guys that are just doing it with water like like that. They'll plant the seed and they'll water it right in. And now you've mm -hmm. got ideal water right. composition. You get germination going as fast right. as possible. Yes. And you are as gentle as you can be to the seed. Agreed. All right. This is from PW. So I'd like to start doing my own spraying. wonder if you could recommend a sprayer starter kit with all needed parts like tanks, supplies, sprayers in the, you're going to like the range, Brian, fifty dollars to $150,000. Well, that's a big range there, PW. You know, there's a lot of different things that you can do. I, I would recommend working with a local dealer and looking at, you know, depends on, do you want a pull type? Do you want a self-propelled? Those types of things. When you've got a 150 k budget, you may be able to get into a, 
self-propelled sprayer. And if you say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to pull something behind my tractor that just changes things tremendously. So I don't have any starter sprayer kit recommendation. I would just work with a, a dealer that can service you locally and just talk to them. Hey, I haven't done this before. I want something that's fairly easy to run with a real simple control system and, and go from there. Thanks for the question, though. We, we do appreciate that. Uh, okay, let's let's dive into something a little meatier here, Brandon. I got a pile of soil tests coming from, I believe, Pennsylvania. This is from Grant. He said, all right, we're coming to the... Neil Kinsey workshop and Neil would say, use these soil tests went through waypoint. And he said, Neil, Neil would say, use waypoints number to interpret waypoints tests. And he doesn't like to compare to, well, if you ran a Kinsey test, this is what it would show up. And he said, there are some places like university of Maryland that will run some sort of standardization and say, well, if you ran this test, it, it should be this in someone else's test. Why don't you do that with Ag PhD? That's number one question. Why don't we say- Just because well, it takes a lot of work to try to figure that out. That's why. Well, and it varies a little bit too. Yep. Yep, it does. But it, it, anyway, we can comment on just about anybody's soil test, but go ahead. Okay. So he said, another concern is micronutrients. A lot of guys here are spreading dry. We've got these soils that on these tests, he said they're silt loam fields. They were farmed to very low pH uh, down in the upper fours, low fives, and very low soil nutrient levels before we started farming them and building them up. We're still struggling with sulfur and boron and a few other things. But when we spread, for example, 10 pounds per acre of a 10% boron, now all of a sudden you've got a particle here and a particle there and a lot of space right. in between That's where you've right. got plants that don't get it. So yep. how do you handle that in your soil with the fertilizer products that are on the market today? Well, let's keep in mind that the root system isn't in just one tiny little spot. It's in a pretty good area. And when you talk about boron, it moves in water fairly well. So he mentioned sulfur and boron he's having issues with. He's always going to have issues with those because his soil cation exchange capacity uh, looks like is about seven to nine. So we would consider that a light soil. It's not going to hold much of anything. In his area, he gets a lot more rainfall than we do. So when you have more rainfall than we do and you have light soil, you're going to have a big time challenge with nitrate and you're going to have some challenge with sulfate and boron because they're all leachable. So it, it, it takes spoon feeding of those things and I would manage them in his geography different than I would manage them here. But yeah, in terms of the boron, I, I just wouldn't get that terribly worried about the dry thing. But if you're, if you are concerned about it, switch to liquid costs a little bit more, but then you've got it much more evenly distributed across your soil. All right. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Um, oh, one, let me throw one other thing out there. Uh, so it's interesting here, like 60 parts per million, and this I'm, I'm sure this is a Malik 3 test, for phosphorus, 60 parts per million of phosphorus, and the yield goal is 230 bushel corn, and they're calling 60 parts per million phosphorus very high. That's not very high. That's not even enough. Hence, they're soil fertility recommendation, they recommend more phosphorus. Look, if you're going to call, as a lab, if you're going to call something very high, to me that means you, as a farmer, need to start cutting back on it and you can skip a year. Well, you can't skip a year at only 60 parts per million of phosphorus. So for any of you who use the Bray 2 test, that would be similar to that. So the strong Bray test. In other words, there's the P1 and the P2. 
Uh, so the P1 is the lower number that's available right now. P2 is what's available now, plus what's going to come available during the season. The Malik 3 is uh, that correlates similar to the P2. So that correlates similar to the higher number. And most of the time for that higher number, and I'm talking 230 bushel corn, I would like to see at least 100 parts per million of phosphorus. So anyway, just throwing that out there. All right. Thanks for the for the question. This one comes from Kevin in Tasmania, and Kevin said I was checking out your talk on fence line management, and you missed a few things that I wanted to bring up. Weed and grass control is vital to assist wildfire management, fencing materials and costs, construction method, number of livestock that you have out there per acre per hectare, livestock pressure points, gates, erosion control, lots of different things that you may consider. You know what, Kevin, you're right. It is a huge topic. There's certainly a lot of different things we could have could have mentioned in there. Yep. Really appreciate the comments. Uh, really appreciate the thoughtful comments. And thanks for checking out our show. All right, got this one from Mike. And Mike said, I've emailed you before talking about what the sustainable ag people are taught at the local community college here in Kansas. And he said, I'm just really frustrated. They, especially they're, what they're saying about BT corn, they're saying that every single cell of the GMO corn plant contains the DNA of a bacteria that damages the digestive tract of whatever it eats. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There's just a lot of misinformation out there, Mike. You're right. And I, I think this GMO debate now with the COVID vaccines has gotten quite interesting to me. I, in fact, I haven't really heard much out of the... I can't say that we've received a lot of anti-GMO stuff lately, Brian. Yeah, well, I hope that people start to get it, that the whole GMO thing, there's nothing wrong. If you've taken the vaccine, which there are millions of people that have, either the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, guess what? You are now a GMO. You have been genetically modified. You, Your body is now creating a protein that it wouldn't normally create, and that protein is going to help you in the fight against COVID. Okay, it's the same type of thing in the corn plant when you've got a protein that is now being produced to kill certain insects. Animals can digest it just fine. Humans can digest it just fine. There's absolutely no problem. And if you don't believe that, let's just look at a, 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 a massive case study. The United States versus Europe. Europe has not allowed these things over there. The United States has. Are the Europeans living longer than the, than the U.S. people? No. Are they healthier than the U.S. people? No. Is there anything better uh, 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 going on there than here? No. Are livestock healthier? No. <laughs> so, come on. This has been going on for like 25 years. You got an unbelievably enormous case study with hundreds of millions of people proving over a quarter of a century, that it's fine. So we just need to stop worrying about it so much. And if it wasn't fine, then surely millions of Americans would not be getting shot up every day with this COVID vaccine, which is saving lives every single day now. So anyway, we need to, as a country, as a world, start embracing the whole biotechnology industry instead of demonizing it. It's amazing. We're lucky to have it here. All right. So tomorrow is February 3rd. We've got the Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. The radio show tomorrow will be answering questions from from folks at the workshop and, and people that are sending in questions online. If you would like to watch the workshop, if you'd like to take part in that, you can do that. Go to agphd.com. Click on the events tab. You can register there. Thanks for listening to our show today. 
and join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.